superstars. Welcome to the Up Your Creative Genius podcast, where you will gain insight and tips to stomp on the accelerator and blast off to transform your business and your life. I'm your host, Patty Dobervolsky, and if this is your first time tuning in, then strap in because this is Serious Rocket Fuel. Each week, I interview fellow creative geniuses to help you learn how easy it is to up your creative genius in any part of your life. Hey, everybody, it's Patty Dobervolsky with Up Your Creative Genius. Today, I have literally in my mind, a rock star here. Mo Carrick is here. She's on a mission to restore humanity to work, you know, and she does that one people leader at a time, but she does way more than that. And so I'm going to let her tell a lot about herself, but let me just say that, you know, she's got a master's in OD. She was trained by Brene Brown in Dare to Lead. She's certified. She's a coach. She's working with people all around the world to help them step into their greatness, really, and to make a safe workspace for other people. And you're so amazing. You've got a couple of best-selling books, Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job, and Brave Space Workspace. I remember when that came out, and I was so like, woo, yay! So I know her because... I met her through my partner, Julia, who she was the coach at Nintendo and came in there. And then I was grateful enough to be one of the TED speakers on when she was really running TED in Bend, Oregon, which you still may be doing. I don't know. But I just want to say, everybody, get ready. Buckle in because you're going to get some serious download here. Welcome, Mo. I'm so happy you're here. Oh, thank you, Patty. So good to be here. I just am so happy to be here. And I was laughing at my own mind when you said, and she's certified. I'm like, certifiable. I'm certifiable. (laughs) That's for sure. Well, you've had a lot of change. So, you know, I definitely think we're all certifiable after you get to a certain age. Like I either lock them away or bring them out full force. Right. And you're full force. (laughs) Yes, that's one way to think about it, I suppose. So happy to be here. Yeah, cool. Well, would you tell people about yourself? You know, I just gave your shortened bio because there were so many other pretty words. And then her bio closes with, you know, I'm a white heterosexual woman trying to make a difference in the world. And I'm like, yes, you are. You are doing some great things on behalf of white women everywhere. So thank you for that. So well, um, thank you. <laughs> all we right. We got so, some issues, us white women. We got some issues, but. You know, oh, God, no it, doubt. It, I'm it, living in Texas. Can we talk about it? Can we talk about it? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's serious. It's serious mm-hmm. issues down here. <laughs> well, tell us, tell us about you. Tell us your story, like where you came from, and then how did you get into doing what you're doing now, and et cetera. And then I'll ask some oh, questions. Thank you. So great. Well, it's funny, that question, like, how did you get into what you're doing now? Because I've been at it such a long time that it requires me to really go back. But it's something I've talked about. Yeah, 30 plus years, let's be clear, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, but I have three millennial or generation Z children. And Uh each of them in their own way has asked, like, there are different stages in the stepson. And like, you know, how did you end up? Because I think in their mind, it's like, you just sort of magically appeared in this career (laughs) that you love. And it's like, uh, no, that's not how it works. (laughs) So because I never in my wildest dreams could have imagined doing the work that I do now, you know, 
Do you feel that way, Patty? Like, yeah, I'm like, who knew? I mean, you know, I I was just a baby actor trying to scrape it together being a waitress, right? So to think that this, I mean, just in terms of all the experiences, right? So you too, but where'd you grow up? Well, so I grew up on the East Coast. I was born in California, but my parents moved east when I was three. So I grew up in the Boston area. And I lived in outside of Boston for most of my childhood. And I went to school in New Hampshire, New Hampshire, as they say. (laughs) And I was an English major. So like my passion was actually journalism and also fiction. I love to read fiction. And I think I had in my mind, like someday I would write, you know, the great American novel. I'm sure it's still going to happen. It's still (laughs) going to happen. Trust me. I enjoy reading it so much. (laughs) And I ended up writing business books, which are like nowhere near as interesting, but I was a wilderness guide. So when I was in college, like my passion was being in the outdoors. And back then, I mean, there are still today, I'm sure lots of college experience programs. And I had spent my summers with my dad in Yellowstone. He was an Mm. avid fly fisherman. So I grew up kind of loving the mountains of the West, living in New England. I really dreamed of, you know, going to the West. And so I started with bicycle tours. I know you're a big cyclist. Yes. And I worked for a great little company back when I was still in school called the Viking Expedition. Ah, we used to go right by, we used to ride right by the Ben and Jerry's headquarters and we would eat like a pint of Ben and Jerry's. (laughs) It was so good. But I went from there from bicycle guiding to working for Outward Bound, which I had been a student with Outward Bound and I really love the transformative experiences. And then I went on to work for Knowles, which is the National Outdoor Leadership School. So over a period of like I don't know, 10 years, I pretty much worked full time in the wilderness between college and kind of during grad school and then after grad school. And I loved being out there with groups. I loved, it's kind of where I cut my teeth on group work. And, you know, near the end of that time, I started to feel kind of burned out, you know, living out of my car and being outside as much as I was, although I loved it. I really did love the work. The pay was, you know, abysmal, but a friend of mine, so I was in, I had enrolled in social work school because I was a therapist. I worked with chemically dependent kids and their families. And I loved that work, but I was starting to kind of burn out. And so a friend of mine was studying OD, organizational development. And she was like, you should come with me to school. It's really interesting. It's like therapy for adults. You know, I was like, oh, (laughs) Yeah, like, it is. at work. I'm like, really? <laughs> huh? Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> so I went to school with her for the day. Like I just tagged along and I was uh. blown away because I just felt like there's this whole world of people at work who need help and yeah. leaders who need help figuring out like how to make work hospitable, you know, for human life. And that was back in the eighties. And so, you know, I often say we knew then what we know now we had not haven't necessarily made a lot of progress, but we made some definitely not enough. Yeah, not enough. But I did pivot at that point. I was like, okay, I'm not going to become a clinician. I'm going to go to school. I got my master's in, in OD. And then when I finished grad school, I jumped ship completely. I always joke that I turned in my, back then we were like polypropylene, you know, my crampons and my polypropylene. (laughs) And I put on suits, you know, back then we had like I remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, And you had to like, and you could wear the little tie thing around your neck or not, right? Remember? I never (laughs) could. Unless it was a man's tie, I'd put that on and then my boss would be like, "Uh, no, you're not going out like that. I mean, look at your hair. (laughs) A man's tie would have been great. I hated those bow things. So like, what do you do? Do you put a bow like this? Like, let it scrape. Yeah. Put a bow on it. Just put put a bow on it. <laughs> so All right. So then you yeah. started to work in OD. 
I did. I did. I worked in the Seattle area. By then I was in Seattle and I was working for a company called Macaw Cellular, which was Cellular okay. One. And yeah. I was in OD, but kind of peripheral. You know, you take the job you can get, right? So the job exactly. that I could get that I was training how to use a billing system, which was not very sophisticated <laughs> OD, but it was really interesting yeah. because the system that we were working was on the next computer. Do you remember? Oh my God. That is we're, incredible. I wow. know. So we were like the only company that ever implemented anything on Steve yeah, Jobs' yeah. next yes, computer. The of course. boxes were like this big, you know? Yep. <laughs> but it was a really good job for me. It like got me over the hump of, you know, being in the wilderness. And then now I was in corporate America. And, you know, I had a lot of negative feelings about people in corporate America because I had come from the nonprofit social services side. And here I found myself with these people that actually were really interesting people making change happen in the world, but they had kind of more means, you know, so yeah, it really they just made big, money. That's what I always tell money. people, you know, you want to go into corporate if you want to make money, you want to yeah. feed yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I made that transition and kind of worked, you know, internally for a number of years. Yeah. And then in 2001, went out on my own. Oh, 2001. That's so fantastic. Yeah, I, I love that. Oh, that's so great. And so now you have really evolved what you've done, mm -hmm. right? I yeah, mean, totally. you did OD before, and I don't know when I came across you, maybe 2004. Five, around there, 2005 or 2006. Mm -hmm. And you were doing not traditional OD. You would come and facilitate C-level leaders, right? In their mm -hmm. offsites, right? Yeah, a lot of offsites. And a lot of, I would say I was probably... I was like your classic custom consultant, you know, yeah. I would come in and assess the situation, diagnose, and then work with them. Often I would work with clients for a long period of time, you know, one yeah. to three years yeah. and during a period of big transition. So like when I met Julie and Nintendo, that's when they went from 2 billion to 8 billion, you know, when the yeah. Wii hit, it was like a super exciting time to consult to them. And so that's kind of what I did for a long time, custom consulting. I always joke, it was basically trading time for money. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And I would go around the world and train people in change management. And that's really what I did, you know, yeah. but I got yeah. really good at facilitating in that experience. Like you learn how to listen well, you learn how to move people along. I think, you know, I'm probably more demandy and commandy than you are in the corporate space because I really like an outcome at the end because I'm drawing a picture. Yeah. It's got to look pretty, right? right. And got to right. be finished in some way. So, but don't, but, but don't you think that even, Patty, like even with your drawing, I think one of the things I've always appreciated about you when I've seen you work, and I feel it's like this skill that I've gained by accident as well, which is like yeah. holding space, which you wouldn't think you're doing much yeah. when you're holding space, but like it's so big to hold space and get to that outcome or to move those people forward. You're not necessarily doing anything, no. um, but you're doing so much. Well, and I think this idea of holding space, I was talking to a couple that we had dinner with and we were talking about how do we create change in terms of race and equity? And I was saying, you know, we need to actually have tolerate and have conversations that are really uncomfortable. And you've gotten very good at that. I mean, that's how I know you is mm -hmm. that you are willing to go to the really hard places and hold space and also 
help people come to, I would say, their senses, but mm-hmm. a deeper sense of what is happening in the room. So, you know, you. say a little bit about what you learned in the Dare to Lead training and then also what you've been doing around equity and inclusion, because mm-hmm. I think people will be very interested to hear that from your yeah. perspective. Thank you. Well, you know, Dare to Lead, and I started with my relationship with Brene Brown's content when it was The Daring Way. Yes. And what happened to me, I had one of those experiences, I'm sure you've had them, where I read one of her books. I didn't know who she was from Boo. Yeah. I had, of course, been working in emotional intelligence for a long time. And then I read, someone gave me one of her books, The Gifts of Imperfection. Yes. And I was like, I'm not a perfectionist. You know, come on. I'm not going to This read isn't going to touch me. No, exactly. <laughs> and I read it in like four pages and I'm like, that is me, you know, yeah. that is me. And she, there was a term she used in that book that really touched me. And it was this, it was hustling for worthiness, oh, hustling yeah. for worthiness. Wow. And I was like, who is this person? Like, that's me. I'm like tap oh, dancing. In the world, I, like, that made like me shiver. Girl. That's how much yeah. it was. Oh it's, yeah. Oh, me too. And so I started researching her. And at that time she was, you know, certifying people in the, the daring way. And I went, I mean, I don't know how I got in. I just, oh. and it was really pretty mind blowing yeah. for me because she was the first person that I had had experience with in the space of OD work that was a woman who was like kicking ass and taking yeah she she really really is on her game totally and there's no bs there at all No, and there's no there's very few other women in our space who are doing that now at that time she was like it was mostly therapists there were about 20 of us in my cohort there were OD. she's like you guys wait i got a book it's coming for you you know and then a few years later dare to lead came out had a slightly different body of research and so i just moved into that work and i still find that you know for me that work now is a little bit like you know when you buy a new car and you've never seen like a bright yellow volkswagen bug and then you see it everywhere and then you that's over, a, you're like, you know, everybody. that's a reticular activating system, you know, in action. That's a part of your brain that it has its own Google algorithm. So when you see something and that calls it to your brain, and that's why I tell people, put the picture of your future somewhere you can see it every day because it taps the reticular activating system and it'll pull all the things in the future to you and you'll oh see gosh. them everywhere. So yeah, so I okay. bet that then well, you started see, to see it. So then everywhere, I feel like now in everything I do, I can't get away from courage, vulnerability, and shame. I'm like everything we do, courage, yeah. vulnerability, and shame. But I think especially in this work, you know, yeah. around diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice. You know, we have to be so brave in that work. And I think, you know, being in the culture of whiteness and in the culture of the white feminine, we have some real work to do about what it looks like to stand in grounded confidence, to shepherd other people's stories, to not center ourselves, and to not be so fragile that we can't actually, you know, walk through. So I think my feeling is that courage is essential for all of the hard things, you know, that we want in our lives, including partnerships with people that are different than us and effective teams and companies that can meet their mission. And it's all kind of part of the thing now. So I don't deliver as much like straight dare to lead certifications. As no, I no, of course not. Of course not. A, a bit cute, a yeah. Well, what I would say is that it feels like that that's sort of like, you know, that's sort of the compost in the ground that you stand on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so great- you marinate in that and that everything else has sprung from some of the concepts there. And these other things yeah. that I know to be true about you before you did that. 
you know, I knew you before that time and then I knew you after. So I think that one of the things that I'm curious about is when you talk about the fragility of the white woman, say more about that because I'm gay and we're not fragile. I mean, we are, and you can't believe how fragile I've become this year. And so I've really cracked open into that place. But you know, that's the myth is that the gay woman is, we're not fragile. Come on. We put up with too much and we're not going back. Right. But speak to that because I think that's interesting. I want to know more about that. Well, yeah. And it's funny because like I use the word fragile in terms of how white women are often enculturated. I don't think a white women actually are fragile. Like no, correct. No gay and straight. Like they're tough as nails. But <laughs> That's you know, right. They give birth, they raise money, they do hard things. I think what's happened though, and this is, you know, there's of course people that have researched this like Deborah Cannon and others. And then there's just Moe's philosophy, right? But what I see play out over and over again at work, but at home as well, is that, you know, it, it has to do with how we navigate emotion. And I think men and women are enculturated really differently. Men are enculturated that there's one emotion they can feel and express. And that is anger. Anger. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And Jennifer Bosom, who's a University of yeah. Florida researcher, she talks about this beautiful expression she uses. She says, you know, men have a very narrow band of masculinity. What's yeah. acceptable to be masculine is very narrow. And it's basically, you can be pissed off, but you can't be much else. You know, boys don't cry, man up, all that stuff. So we see the masculine caricature and masculine traits around emotion being really narrow. Women, white women in particular, are enculturated really differently. You know, I remember as a child, and I don't know if you remember this, but I remember being given a pretty wide swath of emotional expression. I could cry, I could laugh and giggle and be funny and silly, but what I couldn't do is be angry, right? Yeah, that's right. So what we see is, on enculturation of women who get a message that they should be supportive, right? The helper kind of model, and they should not ever be angry. And so what happens is we subvert, I think, a lot of our real feelings into look like other things. Like that's why women, (laughs) people come to me at work all the time, bosses, and they'll say, you know, I don't like meeting with women and giving hard feedback because they cry and, you know, they're so sad. I'm like, they're not sad. They're pissed. Yeah. They, they just express sad. it in a different way. <laughs> right. The they just express it. Their exactly. Yeah, that's right. Because of messaging. So I think yeah. what happens is, and when we see what's happening in the DEI space, of course, we see white women who become woke. Let's say a white heterosexual middle-class woman becomes woke. She starts to realize, oh man, like I've been upholding patriarchy. I'm part of oppression. I didn't know it. And they feel terrible. I mean, that feels like crap. When you start to wake up and you get shame triggered, you get to feel like oh, that means I'm not worthy. And so then we become, I, I actually call it empty vessel syndrome, which is we become completely cl- like we go from being well-educated, intelligent, articulate women to like, yeah. I know nothing. Yeah. And we turn to black and brown people, to gay people, to queer people and trans people and disabled people. And we basically say, I know nothing. You tell me everything. Instead of, <laughs> instead of, go educate like, yourself, educate <laughs> read yourself some books, books, find out, really. have a hard conversation, but yes, not asking yes. somebody to do it for you. Exactly. Yeah, and also yeah. notice your own story. Yeah. You know, notice your own story. And I mean, I can relate. Yes. I don't think I even knew I was white until I was 24, which is kind yeah. of late. Like you'd think that, that would be, yeah. you know, and, I, and yeah. getting in touch with my heterosexuality took me a few more years after that. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm straight. <laughs> 
I'm white, I'm middle class, that's who I am. And so what does that mean to how I show up in the world? Because if we can't be grounded in our own identity, we can't partner. Oh, it's so true. And I think that most of us, we don't spend time thinking about that. You know, recently I had to look at, you know, the non-binary whole thing that's happening in the world. And I thought, well, I've always been non-binary. I mean, do I need to change my pronouns? Do I need to come out as trans? Do I need to? I had to like investigate these things for myself because otherwise I was making assumptions that I was going to stay the same. And that's not how we grow and change. And that really, it was hard and it ripped me open. And I had memories, you know, from very young. And I thought, wow. This is life at its best. And I know from a spiritual perspective, you know, my essence, it was like, yes, we're having this experience. You're freaking out. I love this because that means you're going to crack open and be more love. Right. And I think that's part of what we have during COVID is that we have this cracking open and this going inward which we haven't had in a long time. And so say what you have experienced during COVID, because I'm curious, like, mm. how did it impact you, your business, your family? Oh, it's been tough. It's been tough for all of us. You know, for me, I call it the great die off because I watched my business just fly off the calendar. You know, March of 2021. Yeah. Like, oh, oh my God. Now I have four employees. I have zero revenue. Like, what are we going to do? Like I've always yeah. traveled for work. That's, you know, been how I had gigs set up for a year in advance and that just all died. And I did panic. Yeah. I mean, I was like, what does this mean? But I also knew that my team was depending on me, you know? So I managed some shame. Like I was sitting with, I'm not worthy. I'm too old to pivot this business. I don't know what that looks like. And yeah. then I kind of got, you know, I spoke about that with some people that could handle my unworthiness, you know, and, <laughs> um, and got it together enough to talk to my team. And I basically said, you know, I don't know how we're going to survive this, but I know that we yeah. are. I had one yeah. team member that was out on maternity, one that's Canadian who had just come back just under the, you know, guy. so oh, wow, wow. yeah. So we had to reinvent the business, which was hard and scary. You know, 2020 was definitely a revenue dip. 2021 bounced back really strong because we yeah. moved more to a program model, you know, stuff. Yeah. Uh, well. Stuff online. Um, yeah. Yeah, which is not anywhere near as connecting, but it's had some beautiful upsides. Like I just love being in my own town, you know, and being able to do the hobbies that I have. (laughs) Like, I just love that. But I also have, you know, these three kids I mentioned, it's been hard on them. You know, I had one that was a freshman when COVID hit. They are really just beginning to come out of that anxiety place. I've, I've got, you know, we have recovery in our family. It's been hard emotionally on all of us. And kind of, and you lost your mom in the middle of this. Yes, yes, we lost my mom and my father in law. We had two deaths. Now, neither one was from COVID, but I think we got lucky with my mom. I mean, not lucky, it was horrible that she died, but um, we were lucky in the sense that we could be there. You know, my father in law was not, we weren't able to visit, you know, and I just think that was really hard for my husband and his widow and stuff. And, and yeah, that took up a lot of my 2021 was caring for my mom who had, my mom had what do they call it? It's basically medication induced dementia. She had a broken wrist and then a broken hip and all the narcotics brought her dementia on full force. I didn't even know that was a thing. And so she, you know, my mom's worst fear was to lose her mind in a capacity care yeah. setting. And yeah. that's exactly what happened. So for me, I was grateful that I was her caregiver. I could be here with her and with her when she died, but you know, that changes 
your point of view. So I feel like it's been a transformative period, but also a scary period. And then of course, on the work side, and I know a lot of your listeners are in some transition and we're seeing what everybody's calling the great resignation. I call it the great reframe, you know, yeah, me people too. are, yeah, they're looking at work. They're like, hmm. what <laughs> right? you want to pay me what <laughs> right. to do what yeah, I'd rather totally. start my own business. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're also yeah. like, wait a minute, this shouldn't suck. And that's what I've always said. Like, work exactly. should not suck. That's right. That's what you're all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it so should feel me, good. It should yeah. feel good. And so for employers and employees alike, for me, it's this wonderful time to re to really reshape our relationship with work. And yeah. of course, it's hard, very difficult to do in a capitalist society. But I find myself energized by the stories I'm seeing yeah. and the way companies, I mean, I feel bad for business leaders because they're like, oh, oh. but yeah. on the other hand, they're having to change fundamentally the cultures that they create in order to be better for people. Well, yeah. And and to retain their people. I think this has been the biggest challenge and people will say, we can't keep people. I go, well, you can't keep people because you don't have a good workplace environment. And why don't you have that? Because you never really spent the time to build that. And that takes attention, focus, love, courage, all those things that you talk about. And then once you have those and you want to have a good product too, whatever it is, if you're in that kind of a service industry or a product industry, that has to be good too. And then your customers have to be happy and everything's changed so much. It's so up in the air that I wonder, you know, when you think about the work that you're doing now, what is it that most fascinates you? Like the thing that catches your attention, you say, yeah, more of that. I want to do more of that. Well, oh, I love that question so much. I think there's two things. One is like, I am really captivated by young leaders. Yeah. You know, like I'm a baby boomer and we, our asses are exiting this workforce, you know? Yeah. And it is time, but we have not, nor have the generation Xers. We've not done a good job handing off the baton and it's time. Yeah. It's time. So I see these young people coming in with so many more skills at inclusion. I know. Well, and not just that, but they're so so smarter than we were. They're like whole people. They're whole people, they're flexible, they're curious, you know, they have a global perspective that is mind blowing. So to me, that's super exciting. And my team is young and I'm so grateful for that because I mean, they kind of treat me a little bit like the wise old elder and I struggle a little bit with even some of the technologies that we use. I'm like, wait, tell me about Notion (laughs) or Slack. Like, what do I do? You know, but I'm learning. So I think the young people is just a huge, a huge thing for me. The other thing that's exciting for me, but it's also kind of terrifying is a lot of our clients. So as you know, my company was a B Corp for many years. We did let that go in 2021, just because it's a lot of work to keep it going. But we have a real passion for business as a force for good. So we've always gravitated more towards private companies because the public company leadership challenge is just so untenable. I mean, you just can't make money up and to the right over and over. That's not how the natural world works. So we do work. And in COVID, we've worked a lot in both healthcare and education. Yeah. And those systems from a, you know, systems thinker and a leadership perspective, they are so broken. I was going to say broken, but I didn't know if I could get it out of my lips because they are, and me too. That's where I've been healthcare and working with education because it is broken. The people are not broken. No, no. The the people are, the system is broken. It's devastatingly broken. So uh, yes. And I think to get into that, like, oh, 
like that's a whole topic unto itself because there are some amazing people that are working to heal that so that it is for the neurodiverse child. Mm -hmm. And that's what needs to happen, you know? And I think that people don't understand that. They think, oh, oh, you know, they're autistic. They're not going to be able, I mean, like, look, this is the world we live in now, right? We messed up the food chain. (laughs) We fed people the food and then (laughs) it shows up in these ways. And we think, well, how did that happen? Well, yeah. Okay. So, you know, these are the ripple effects of it. But I wonder when you think about that, when you envision the future of what you're going to be doing and what you see out there, the bright light, out there. Mm. Not that bright light, but the bright lights of the really amazing world that we're going to step into. What do you see as part of it? Mm. Well, I would say probably two main things that I see when I dream ahead, right? One is leaders who are through and through good for people. Yeah. Like, and you've used the word love a couple of times, Patty, today. And I love that you're using that word because for me, that's what leadership at its best is all about. It's like leaders who have the capacity to open their heart, create real connection. And I don't mean just leader by positional authority. I think of even a leader in the classroom. My son is substitute teaching. And he told me this story yesterday about a little boy. He was in second grade. This little boy had a scab on his knee. And he said, he said he had to go see the nurse, but the nurse was on break. So my son took him for a walk and he said, tell me how bad is your pain? (laughs) <laughs> a scab on his knee not an open wound and this little boy and he, my son said it's a one to ten you know and he said it's definitely a ten and Ian was like well let's talk about that though really like what about if you actually broke your leg that might be more of a ten you know but what I what struck me about that is that in this case leader my son substitute teacher had an opportunity for 15 minutes to make a difference to a little boy whose knee scab was the most important thing for him And I think that, you know, so when I get excited about the future of the workplace, I think about leaders at every single level who actually have the capacity to love and to connect, not in an unhealthy HR way, but like in a real way that activates the greatness of people. Like that's mind-blowingly exciting to think about. And the other piece I think is that people have lives that work, that human beings in every sector, including the really dirty, hard, ugly jobs, that they too actually have a life that works. Because yeah. we need, you know, we need people to shoe our horses and clean out our drains and serve food. We need those people, yeah. but we act like they're not people. Yeah, we, we act like they're them. slaves, really. Yeah. That's what's true. Yeah. We just treat them like that. Come in the house and do the thing. Bye, see you later. And I remember one of the great things that I learned living in New York from the woman that I lived with there was our production stage manager, and she tipped everybody. Mm. And, you know, I took that to heart. And so whenever anybody brings something to our house, I tip them because they need to know that I appreciate them and that I'm not going to take them for granted at minimum wage. And I think that if minimum wage stays where it is and we continue to treat people like that, just because they don't look like us, they don't have the education we do, 
or that they're just in a job like that. I mean, I did those jobs. I know you did too. We did those jobs. We cleaned people's houses. So, you know, it's not that far in the past. And if you've never had that experience, go clean somebody's house and see how you like it, right? You have to really have compassion and empathy for what people are doing to make your life easier. Yes. Absolutely. And during COVID, and, you got to really see that, I think, you know, well, and, yeah, and, and, and yeah. these healthcare workers, you know, like yeah. that are just dealing with such bad behavior, you know, oh, and, it's and unbelievable. Wait, waitresses and waiters who are just getting sexually harassed. Like we just have a long, I was thinking so about I, the flight attendants too, where people are getting disruptive on the plane. I'm like, please people sit down. They are not your mother or father or whoever beat you up or whatever happened to you that before you came into this plane, please, please just relax. Yeah. Yeah. And be be compassionate, you know, for ourselves and for others. You know, it seems when I say it out loud, I even look at myself, you probably do this too, Patty. Sometimes I'm like, oh God, Mo, you're just in your mind. You're like in La La Land, you know, but I really am not like, I really believe that that workplaces can be fit for human life and that there's a place for everybody. You know, there is a place for every worker to bring their good stuff and have it activated. And I just think that we've lost our ability to kind of acknowledge that. Yeah. In my dreams, I go there. Yeah. I love that. I think that when we think about the future, what we would want For myself, I think, oh, you know, even I'm listening to myself just like the last two minutes and I think, yeah, Mm. you better like work on that because that seems like you're like running some sort of program in there. So drop that and see if you can't drop into a space where you can empathize for both sides here Mm. for the people who can't step up and the people who can and the people who are on the receiving end. I mean, I think that that's what it calls on in us is to raise our emotional intelligence so high that we are look first to see and then look less to judge, mm-hmm. look less to judge what's happening in yourself yeah. or somebody else and calm yourself down, you know, do whatever PQ rep positive intelligence thing you can do to get yourself from the back to the front and, you know, and right. then step around, apologize, say what's true. And so if I offended anyone who's listening today by what I said, or I didn't say the right thing, I just, I want to apologize in advance and you could write me an email, you know, (laughs) but I am with Mo. And so she's about creating momentum. And so when you think about creating momentum in the world, what kind of momentum Are you interested in creating and what would you tell other people about how they can create momentum? Yeah, it's interesting because I've noticed and COVID has like brought this up even more for me, Patty, but like I definitely narrowed my focus. I've become more capable of claiming that my theater is work. Like it's work, you know, it's the world of work is the one that captivates me in all sectors, but in some, like we've talked like in particular. So for me, part of what momentum means is like being able to keep ourselves grounded, even when work is not that fun, Yeah. because there's still value that we can add. And I did a social media post or something about this a couple of weeks ago. It was really interesting. It got a ton of attention. It was about how I think that it's BS that we encourage young people, especially to follow their passion. 
One of my staff members said to me, we were talking about it, and she said, well, the reason we do that is that our mothers told us that we, this is a generation, uh, this is a millennial. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Our mothers told us we could do anything we wanted that's and right. that we should hold out until we, you know, found our passion. And I'm like, yeah, but that's bull because like you put my passion. You can't is, hold out no, that long. No, Trust me. I it's not going to magically appear. You got to totally. work your way up the ladder. You unfortunately. Work up the la- and also that's right. I, my passions may fulfill my life. Like I love, you've probably seen, I write all the time about my horse who I love and all that. I'm never going to make money as a horse person. Like I'm not that good, you know, but I can indulge that passion. And so I think sometimes we have to put ourselves in the mindset of saying, okay, this job or this life circumstance or this city I'm living in isn't maybe my highest and best right now, but it's putting me forward. It's giving me a thing that says that I'm learning, that I'm growing, that I'm meeting some new people, and it's going to lead me to a different thing. So I think that's for me what momentum means. is like being able to tolerate the somewhat uncomfortable now for the sake of what we know it will bring for us, you know. Um, um, Tolerate the somewhat uncomfortable now with the knowledge that something great is coming, right? May not be now, but wow, that is, that is deep. That's boom, mic drop. I mean, it really, it really is because no matter what age you are or where you are in your career or your life, you know, it's not always pretty. I think this is the thing, the myth that we get fed is that, you know, you have this thing and then it becomes this thing and it's like magnificent and then it remains there. But in fact, that's not how the world works. It goes like this up and down and up and down and up and down. And that resiliency really is key. If you can be resilient to change, you got it. That's it. And that even resiliency changes and the level and degree and all the hard places inside of yourself. Well, yes. And Patty, I've been doing a lot of work on resilience, as I'm sure you have. And I looked up the word, I don't know, a year ago, whatever. And I was really interested to find out that it's a physics term that describes when metal in particular gets deformed, like it's about our ability to bounce, to retake our previous shape, you know, when we get bent out of it. And I think that um, when we get bent out of our shape, you get, right. you're hearing that, right? When you get bent right. out of shape, so you, you can reform. You got to reform. And it may not yeah. be the same. In fact, it probably isn't going to be the same. No. When Cammie Dunway, my co-author on my first book, Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job, when we were researching our book, one of the things that we thought was a brilliant idea then, and I still do now, was that we realized in our interviews and our research that we did identify seven things that people need from work. And those seven things are temporally sensitive. They change over time. The time. Yeah, they change. Over what time. I needed when I was 20 is really different yeah. than what I need now at 60. And to me, there's just so much grace in like acknowledging and be able to say, you know, wow, right now, this is meeting my needs because it's allowing me to blank whatever. Yes. And it yeah. won't be forever. You know, no. it'll be for now. And what, what a great way of approaching things, I think, mm. is to realize that for this moment right now, you're in a space where this works, but that yeah. space will be transitory. So be sure mm. to appreciate everything that you're experiencing, good, bad, indifferent, right? So I can't wait to talk to you again. And I just love you so much. I respect you so much. I'm just in this conversation, I think of the other conversations we've had and how I've grown and changed 
as a result of listening to you. And so for those of you that are listening, you know, be sure to connect with Mo. She has one of the best posts almost every day you post something, right? And they're so interesting and they take you on a journey. So if you want to evolve and change and be a better leader, you know, follow Mo Carrick because she'll get you some momentum. That's for sure. Well, (laughs) thank you, Patty. And I want to shout right back at you because you have been a real inspiration for me always, ever since I've known you all those years ago, because of the visual nature of your work. We use visual recording in our work. You've trained my people and it's changed everything about how we think. And when you launch your podcast, which I'm so honored to be part of, it really inspired me because I tried to start a podcast in 2020. I interviewed three famous people and then I never launched them. It's like, I'm so embarrassed. But I just didn't have it together. Like I was not ready. And then I've been following your podcast. And I just, it's only a few months ago, I said to my team, okay, we're launching the podcast and it doesn't have to be perfect. Like just do it, you know? So you're really inspiring and especially inspiring for like that, the expression you use of creative genius, like of really that deeper work that takes us some time to get there but is so important. And for me, you know, as someone who has plenty of things to occupy my mind, I can easily fritter away my creative genius on stupid things. But to really tune in and be like, no, actually, Mo, hang in there. The good stuff is coming is really powerful. And you inspire me to do that. Oh, so thank, thank you, you so much. That. Well, I just think that this is the time. The time is now and the opening is now for all of us to step into more of our creative genius. There's no better time than now to start your Agreed. business, to change how you are as a leader, to you know make friends with people you never thought you would to move to a country, you know, I was going to say a country, but to a state where you never thought you'd live, right? This is the time to do it and know that you can do it. And so I thank you for this time together. And I look forward to doing this again, because this is going to be so fun. All right. Thanks, Patty. All right. Talk to you soon, Mo. All right, everybody, you know, the drill, please follow Mo and, you know, In the show notes, you'll see all of her social media that you can get in on what she's doing because she's amazing. Okay, until next time, up your creative genius. Let's do this. Thanks so much for listening today. Be sure to DM me on Instagram your feedback or takeaways from today's episode on Up Your Creative Genius. Then join me next week for more Rocket Fuel. Remember, you are the superstar of your universe and the world needs what you have to bring. So get busy, get out and up your creative genius. And no matter where you are in the universe, here's some big love from yours truly, Patty Dobrovolsky and the Up Your Creative Genius podcast. That's a wrap. 